Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to episode 376 with my guests, Corey and Daisy. We're going to explore the topic of uh, polyamory, among many other things. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Squarespace. The future is coming and you can make it brighter with Squarespace. They make it easy to turn your idea into a unique website to showcase your work, your blog, publish any kind of content, even sell products and services of all kinds. Just in a few clicks, you can customize everything from the look and the feel, the settings and products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And I know it's good because I use it. I do it to show off my dog pictures and music that I do and stuff like that. And uh, it's awesome. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. Uh, there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL, and you can save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Once again, that's squarespace.com, offer code MENTAL. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin, in case you're wondering. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Um, I hope that doesn't shock you. I think I've done that joke before, actually. Uh, I really liked uh, like uh, this week's episode. Um, I love episodes where I learn about something that I've always been curious about and kind of felt like I knew about it. And then I realize how stupid I am, but not in a bad way. Uh, when I become enlightened, how's that for a more compassionate, self-compassionate way of uh, describing what I love about this this episode? Um, before we do that, oh, I want to remind you guys, uh, those of you in the Twin Cities, I am coming there um, Saturday, April 7th. That's a week from uh, the day that this podcast is uh, is airing. Um, I'm doing two shows. It's at Sisyphus Brewery, uh, one show at four and another show at eight. And my guests are going to be, uh, uh, Cy Amundsen and, uh, Nora McInerney. She's the host of Terrible Thanks for Asking. And it's going to be a lot of fun. 
a lot of fun. Uh, so I'll put the link to that for you to get tickets. Again, that's Saturday, April 7th in Minneapolis from, um, uh, one show at four and another show at eight. And I would love to, uh, um, have you guys come out and say hi and look at my sad face in person. <laughs> my face is not sad. I love my life. I really do. Yeah, I got struggles now and then and I backslide, but I fucking love my life. Um, uh, I came from my Thursday night support group. Um, whenever I do this podcast, I, I record late night on Thursdays when I get home. And um, it was a great meeting tonight. And the topic was acceptance. And I thought, you know, so many of our struggles, the root of it is an illusion of control over something and then getting upset when our attempt to control that thing backfires on us. And then we blame other people instead. For instance, traffic. Why do we get upset at traffic? There, there's nobody in charge of traffic. Yeah, maybe you could get upset at it a city planner that closes five lanes at rush hour. But, you know, for the most part, it, you know, confusing accepting something with approving of something uh, is, is, I think, where a lot of people cause themselves unnecessary anger. Getting angry about things that you can't control or even have influence over is such a waste of our valuable physical and mental energy. There's so many better things to waste it on. Civilization five, golden tea, sitting in a corner thinking about yourself. Those are great ways to waste your time. But something that really kind of bothers me, it's a kind of a trope in the American dream is when you tell people you can do anything you want to. I understand that you're trying to give people hope and that's awesome. But I also think that's not entirely accurate. You know, no matter how hard I tried, I was not going to be an NFL middle linebacker. Maybe it would be better to say you can be passionate about anything you want to be. You can devote your energy to anything you want to be. You can express yourself in any way you want to. You're free to be you. Those, I think, are awesome. But, you know... I think when people latch onto this idea that they can do anything they put their mind to, the, the goal becomes the focus instead of how we go about attaining that goal. You know, some of the worst art I've come across is art where you can tell the person didn't enjoy what they were doing along the way. It was the the end product was something to gratify that person, to bring them attention. 
that the what drove them was an emptiness inside them and not a desire to communicate with other people. And I think both things can happen at the same time. I mean, I'd be lying if I, you know, didn't say I got into this the entertainment industry because I was a shell of a human being that wanted love. But what I've discovered is there's a there's two kinds of passion that I've experienced. The passion that comes from a place of fear of missing out or not being enough. And then the passion of expression, discovery, and taking on a challenge. And before you set out to do that thing that somebody told you, you can, you can achieve that if you want to. Ask yourself, why are you doing that? When young stand-up comedians come up to me and say, do you have any advice? I would say, ask yourself why you do stand-up, um, what your goals are, and what you're looking for in achieving those. And I, I was forced to look, you know, when I was on TV at a certain point, at why I wanted my face on a billboard. Um, and I had my face on a billboard and it was on Sunset Boulevard, which I had always thought if I could get my face on a billboard on Sunset Boulevard, I would feel like I had arrived and I was officially in show business. And you know what? They did it one year. They, the show put my face on a billboard and I went and I looked at it and I lost respect for Sunset Boulevard because I was trying to fill an emptiness. I was not approaching my job from the place of, I want to give to other people. Um, I'm passionate about the craft of this. No, it was all about what am I getting? And man, the, the, the ego is just an insatiable cocor. <laughs> I think Gandhi was the one that said that. Um, so I don't know. Somebody said in a meeting one time, they're talking about acceptance, serenity resides in plan B. I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. And by that, I mean the the pregnancy pill. You take, uh, if you take enough of them, you will feel serene. Uh, All right, let's get to a couple of uh, things that I wanted to talk about. I want to read a couple of surveys. Uh, these are the struggle in a sentence surveys. Um, o for cupcakes describes her anxiety. Like the entire world is on fire, but I'm the only one who can see it. That is so fucking good. Giggling fish uh, has boundary issues and s- shares a snapshot uh, from her life. Um, I want to reach out to people. But most of my friends in the support group I go to are so codependent that I feel like they just listen to me to be polite. You know what my therapist would say? Well, what are the facts on the ground? Have they told you that they just listen to you to be polite? No. Then don't assume it. Um, Either that they are just pretending to care about how I feel for a moment while eagerly waiting their turn to empty all of their pent-up shit that they've gathered and then asking me for advice that they'll never follow. Uh, It's hard to set boundaries with these people because they are already so broken and apologetic that I can't think of any way to express how I feel without sounding like a total dick. 
uh, my thought on that one is share how you feel uh, and just make sure it doesn't veer into a moral lecture about their actions or you know, become, turn into something where you're trying to change them. Um, to me, boundaries are just about saying, hey, you know, when such and such happens, I feel this way and it's, you know, becoming problematic for me. So I'm going to have to do this. Um, and then at the same time, I'm afraid to call my new sponsor because I hate opening up myself to people only to hear life can be like that sometimes and, uh, and not much else. You know, the thing that strikes me about all of the things that you're sharing is that there is a desire to connect with these people, but you're afraid to let go of control. And the most healing power that I've discovered in getting help is the power of human connection through being vulnerable. But you cannot be vulnerable and in control at the same time. They're, that it's, they're, the, they're two opposite things. And that's what makes intimacy so special is because you could be hurt. So when you're not hurt and just the opposite happens and you're loved and you're seen and you're felt and you're heard and you feel a part of, it's fucking amazing. It's like it wouldn't be exhilarating if you bungee jumped off a couch, but when you do it you know, off of thousand-foot bridge, it's amazing when your head almost smashes the rocks. That's my point. Go out there and almost smash your head on the rocks. I think that might have veered off course. Uh, and then finally, this um, this is... Uh, Paul, is this a lead-in into your uh, advertisement for BetterHelp.com? Why, yes. Faithful listener, it is. Um, I think this is this is filled out by uh, a listener who calls himself, uh, what is this no word you speak of? And she writes, my therapist looked me right in the eye and said, you're sure you don't deserve love and attention? You feel it inside you. If you don't deserve it, why are you trying so hard to get it from other people? I was dumbfounded. Why do I do that? Sounds dumb. She smirked at me. Damn it all, she got me. I love and hate this woman at this moment, and she's so right. You deserve love and attention. Deep down, you know it. You give all yours away, leaving nothing for yourself. We can work on that. The smirk became a warm smile, and I'm terrified, but I believe her. I'm not lost yet. Oh, I love when I love God, I love when the when, when the just that pin light of hope comes on in somebody. And uh, yes, I mentioned BetterHelp.com as a sponsor of ours. I use them. I love my therapist. Um, if you've never tried online therapy, give it a shot. Uh, I love it. We do video uh, every week. Um, go to BetterHelp.com/mental. Fill out a questionnaire, and then they'll match you with a uh, counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you, and you need to be over 18. It's, uh, again, betterhelp.com slash mental. And then uh, the way she summed up uh, her codependency uh, is Hall of Fame. She writes, I know how I'll feel once my husband gets home. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. 
was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people pleasing, dread, silent, invisible, just wailing, stuck in the grip of the obsession, derealization, depersonalization, the suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get, you know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scottface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, it comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Daisy and uh, Corey, and they are uh, partners. Um, is that the... Yeah, that's normally what we go by. And uh, you're in a polyamorous uh, relationship. We'll get to that, but uh, there's other stuff that I want to uh, talk about. Uh, Corey, you are 28, and Daisy, you're 24. Mm-hmm. And you've been uh, together for how long? Uh, just over three years. Okay. The big issues that you struggle with, uh, Daisy, um, are... Not diagnosed with anything. I really don't want a diagnosis. I don't think it'll help my self-diagnosed anxiety. But um, probably situational depression, um, a lot of control issues, um, <laughs> things like being very nervous currently um yeah uh right now also struggling sort of with codependency and jealousy surrounding the relationship and i think that's something um interesting to talk about in terms of polyamory because it's it's not discussed and people think if you're a jealous person that you can't make it work and it's it's a choice that i make yeah uh where do you think the nervousness and the um Outside of recording this. Well, first, actually, let me ask you, what are there any specific fears you have about recording that are driving the nervousness or is it just kind of a general anxiety? Uh, general anxiety. Also, partially, I wasn't expecting it to come so soon, I guess. Mm-hmm. I didn't prepare for it. I didn't bring my list of fears and loves. There's, there's, no, there's no prep for this. Okay, good. There's no prep for it. It's just a conversation that happens to have microphones. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, are there fears associated with doing this that any of them that are specific? If you go, if you go to the doomy place of your brain, does it tell you anything? Mm. Um, I guess there are things that we both hear judgments um, in terms of polyamory, and I'm also scared in terms of my profession. I guess um, I'm a massage therapist and a dancer. And those are both things that people already associate with sex. And um, I will get sexualized um, just being in the industries that I'm in. And, oh, are you an exotic dancer? Oh, um, oh, you must be really flexible. Oh, you must be really strong. And, um, you know, a lot of creepy men will request female therapists and um, massage therapists. And um, so I guess I'm worried that I'm going to be even more so judged mm-hmm. or prejudged um, for being in those industries that my clients will hear this and 
judge me um, for my choices or for just because they know something about me sexually that they won't be able to get that out of their heads and that they'll have to stop seeing me or make a different choice for themselves. What does it feel like when somebody says, oh, you must be really flexible? <laughs> um, or, or one of those other comments? I guess and, I've learned and, to... And how do you handle it? You just brush it off? I've learned to brush it off. Uh, I think that's part of being a woman, almost. Uh, we're used to getting cat calls it's i think it started with cat calls um and then even more so getting on tinder after um after we started dating actually um i didn't do dating apps before the polyamorous relationship and um just i don't know i don't have anything else to say about that i guess okay um yeah i i guess just being a woman you learn to you learn to brush things off or it just will bother you until the day you die and it might come a lot sooner that way. <laughs> what what are the feelings that that come up when somebody does that? And if th- any specific instances you can think of. I think the feeling that I of nervousness that I have even even like now with recording that um my my blood boils almost like I feel like these heart palpitations and it almost feels like a panic attack is coming on. And, um, I, I go into the place of being with the, the deer in the headlights feeling, I guess I I go to the place of almost shutting down and then I get out of that situation and I usually freeze. I don't do anything. I don't say anything. I just ignore them as best I can. And then I get out of the situation and I say like, oh, there's so many things I would have said. Like I should have stood up for myself. Like he's taught me how to do wrist locks. I should have put somebody in a wrist lock and really taught him a lesson. Corey does uh, MMA uh, for for our listeners, uh, which is mixed martial arts. Um, Is there rage? I don't think the... Sadness? I mean, what... If if you can think of any emotion, it's really, it's really fear. I grew up with so much fear. I was afraid of the world. I think I still am really afraid of basically everything. Um, at some low level, there's always a fear. Um, and I'm always driven by trying to avoid my fears or trying to plan out situations in my head as best I can thinking of all the different ways that a situation could possibly go. And 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 are, do they revolve around physical safety, emotional safety, how, how you will look, um, how you will feel? Is there any specificity to? I think mostly when something like a cat call, I think it goes to the place of physical safety. Um, I'm a small woman. I'm five three, hundred seventeen pounds. Like I'm. I'm small, like I can't take anybody. (laughs) And I know that, I know that there's a possibility, you know, I, as soon as I hear a cat call, as soon as I hear somebody say, oh, like, you must be so flexible, you must like, you know, do you, are you an exotic dancer? That always goes to the place of, I could die. I could die right Uh now. And, you know, this is, this is how I'm going out and I'm, there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do wow. to stop it. It's just gonna. It's just gonna happen. It's coming for me right now. I can't imagine what. What that has to be like. I don't think that's everybody's experience of it, but that's mine. And I think that fear was instilled in me as a child. And um, how so? 
I'm an only child and not necessarily a wanted child, um, which is strange. My in I've, I talked to both of my parents separately. Um, my mom always told me since I was a child that she never wanted kids and that if she could have chosen to redo her life, she never would have had kids. She wouldn't have even wow. married my dad. She wouldn't have stayed in the United States. She was an immigrant from Taiwan, and she said she would have gone back to Taiwan. She would have died at age 40. She never would have had kids or gotten married, and she had me at 38. And so I was, I was not unloved, but very. I always felt like I was not wanted. How is somebody telling you If they could not have you, if they had the choice of not having you, they would make that choice. How is, how can that exist with unconditional love at the same time? It's, it's strange. It's, it's also cultural, I think, in a way. Um, so I'm, my dad is white and he's from Ohio. My mom is Taiwanese. Um, and so, but I was raised in a very traditionally Asian household. My dad wasn't really, he wasn't there with the quote unquote American or white values. Um, I think there is an understanding in Asian households that your parents want the best for you and that everything that they're doing to push you and everything that they say to you is to make you better and to give you the best life possible and to give and to make your life better than theirs was. So it's very self-sacrificing. They, um, I think, in the terms that Do you like to use. They usually let you know that they are sacrificing. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Which to um, me negates the sacrifice. It does. It does in a way. Um, or it's at always least some of it. It's always a oh you won't understand until you have kids. Oh you won't understand until later. I think they expect children to have the emotional capabilities and even the intellectual capabilities of adults. So it's safe to say that emotional growth is not on the radar culturally uh, for what you experienced or not culturally, because I, I think that applies to many, many uh, cultures and segments of, of society is it's just about how can I prepare this this kid to financially survive. Right. And yet we never think, well, maybe let's say finances are still the most important thing to us, them being emotionally resilient is very much linked to their financial survival as well. Yeah, it was a very emotionally invalidating household, can I think, you, growing up. Can you share some examples? Um, I mean, my favorite one, <laughs> I think, to talk about is that my mom always told me not to have kids because I'm too selfish. So there was never a little bit of projecting. Um, that's a bit. I think she didn't want me to make her mistakes and she saw that I was similar to her and she just didn't want me to have the regrets that she had, that she had to give up her career. She worked for Apple in the nineties and then she quit to have me, you know, she, we could have been millionaires. Mm -hmm. Um, we, I gotta say she's right now. I, I, yeah. That was a terrible decision. Right? On her <laughs> we could have Good had kid. so much money as opposed yes. to me. <laughs> wow. That, what does it feel like when you hear that? Um, I think at that age, I, 
I was so, I needed her validation. I needed to not disappoint her. And I think to me, that was being the ultimate disappointment. And it just, it made me incredibly sad. I think I grew up pretty depressed as a kid because I just, even though she said those things in moments of anger, um, and it was always, she, she yelled at me and my dad for the same things. Even if only one of us had actually committed the transgression, like Mm -hmm. leaving a drawer open when we went to get a fork, you know, it would always come down to, you know, I've told you this so many times to close the drawers and you just don't listen to me. How many times do I have to say this? You don't care about me because you never remember these things that matter to me. And you both do this. You're just like your father or to him. It's you're just like your daughter's just like you. And you always pass on the worst traits. And there's a, there's an idiom in Chinese, um, that basically boils down to the, the traits, genetics, meaning, um, the traits that are the worst in one generation get passed down to the next generation and then the best of that generation doesn't it stops so that that's each generation upbeat. that's pretty up right and which yeah. the the chinese really are <laughs> i think they're very optimistic people um they that each generation just gets watered down and gets worse and worse and worse and they just wow. gather the worst traits of all the generations before them and so i think she she didn't hold that against me personally but she was actually sorry for having had me because of that. She, she wouldn't apologize to me sometimes and say like, I'm sorry that I brought you into this world because it's not a good world and you've got all of our worst traits. You've got all of the worst traits of your dad and you've got all of my worst traits. I'm so wow, sorry. How are you not sad? That is. That's why I am. <laughs> I am so sorry, man. That, that. I think that's a pretty common experience actually and um not not necessarily those specific things but i have talked to a lot of my asian friends not just chinese but a lot of asian friends indian friends um even middle eastern um a lot of people have that experience not so much with my white friends although i guess the conversation doesn't really go that way um and i'm not saying that white families aren't capable of instilling such terror in their children but um, I think that happens with a lot of in a, in a lot of cultures that children understand simultaneously that their parents love them and resent them in wow. some way. Wow! If you could, I know this is a cheesy question. I love to ask it, but if you could get in a time machine and go talk to yourself at any mm-hmm. age, what would you say, and what do you think? little you would have wanted someone to say to them? Um, I have two answers for this question, I think. Um, One of them, I would... My mother died four years ago. And so I would go back to myself at that age. And... But I think I would go back as like a 30 or 40-year-old version of myself having a little more perspective and take that version of myself and go back to my 20-year-old self and ask... or ask all the questions that I would have wanted to know and hear more stories and ask my mother, like, did you, did you actually say these things in moments of rage? Did you actually mean these things? Did you mean that you didn't want me? Did you, because I really internalized those things and they really shaped me and the repercussions of not having a shred of self-worth are still affecting me today. And I'm only now really starting to build any sense of 
personality and, and self-worth. Um, so there's that. I would, I would love to ask my mother those questions. Um, I think I made peace with her at the time that she died and I did the best that I could being sort of in my belated rebellious teenager stage, um, because I was a very faithful daughter when I was a teenager. And then I got to about 20 and I became very disillusioned about my parents. Um, but I would, I would really want to know if she meant those things that she said, and I'm sure she did to some extent, but I don't think she intended. Well, I, I know she didn't intend me to internalize them and really yeah. believe them as my core beliefs. And she didn't intend for me to go through life, not having any self-worth because of her words. So I would do that. I would go back to myself. I think earlier, um, eight or 10, I honestly have a terrible memory for emotions. Um, so I would a little bit earlier and before I think she started telling me a lot of those things and try and give myself some kind of self-worth and to say, you know, your mother and maybe try and disillusion myself a little bit earlier because I put my mother on a pedestal, um, until I was probably 19. And I think a lot of a lot of kids that I know that are well-adjusted and um, grew up with security believed believed early in life, you know, um, until like maybe age eight to twelve, that their parents were perfect, and then they started you know, to understand that there is more than one way to raise a kid, and there are bad things that parents will say to children, but that doesn't make their parents bad parents necessarily. And I would just tell myself at that age not to internalize the things that my mother would say and that there are, that she still loves you. And, but that having her love and approval isn't the only thing that's important and to really develop self-love, I think from an early age, because I loved her more than I loved myself and in some ways, as terrible as it is to say, losing her was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because I still would have felt that way. Uh, I would have continued to care more about her than I care about myself. And there's no one else that could replace her. I've never felt about anyone else, any partner or my dad or any other relative. I've never felt about anyone the way I felt about my mom and the way I put her on that pedestal, the way I internalized everything that she said, the way I looked up to her and really needed that kind of approval. I never felt that way about anyone. And I'm starting now to realize that I should have always felt about myself that way, that I should have always put myself in that place of giving myself the ultimate wisdom and compassion and love and that I shouldn't have looked for it elsewhere. But you also understand that's what most kids do. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's easier to, to survive blaming yourself than yeah. realizing I'm in the care of somebody who's really not right. safe. Yeah. <laughs> and shout out to all of the, the, the few listeners whose surveys you read who are 15, 16, earlier even, who have become disillusioned and have realized that they are just in the care of sick people who don't know how to look for help. And 
I, I think my mother was really depressed her entire life or my entire life at least. Um, and my parents had fallen out of love probably before I was born. They were together for 10 years before I was born. And I hope I'm not a marriage saving child. <laughs> they never told me that I was, but I, I think it's, it's really incredible for the, the few children who can take themselves out of the situation that they're in and put themselves in the context of the world. It's amazing if a child can do that. Oh yeah. And, and I was not one of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you think eight year old you would have said? I don't know if I would have believed myself. I don't know. I don't know if I would have cared. <laughs> um, even though I, I've always had a problem with authority. You would have said, please don't tell my mom you told me that. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh no, I'm so scared. Like, um, like I, I guess I would have been, I would have taken that as a, another way to disappoint my mother. Like, oh no, like you want me to not respect my mother? What do you mean? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, because I think respect is, uh, huge in Asian culture and, uh, filial piety is something that I've always struggled with. And when I say I struggle with authority, it's I respect authority figures too much. Mm -hmm. I listen to them too much and I put their wishes and their anything that they say above whatever my own mm -hmm. internal locus of control is. And I, I just never developed that internal locus. Which character in X-Men was filial piety? I don't remember. <laughs> was that the one with the claws? I mean, that would make sense. Claws would be really good for filial piety. <laughs> uh, I assume filial piety uh, means uh, fear of authority. Is that? Is uh, no, that... it's um, devotion to parents oh, and okay. to the family line, I guess. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Corey, is, is you here, um, and, and the way we've set this interview up is, is Corey would, uh, is most comfortable just uh, occasionally chiming in when, uh, when needed. Uh, what what do you uh, think or feel when you hear her sharing all this stuff? It it does certainly make me think about kind of my own upbringing, you know, contrast and stuff. And there there are some areas where there there's some similarities, um, just in certain things that I think of. Certainly not in um, you know the way that that I guess Daisy and her mom interacted. Um, I had a very very different interaction with my mom. Um, but it, uh, it uh, certainly makes me, I don't know, w want to help however I can, I think. You know, if there is any way for me to help, and sometimes it's, you know, uh, I feel a little sad when I can't, but, you know, I, I always try to, you know, either even just talking it out in, in some way. Um, I don't know, it's a, it's a little tough for me. I mean, it's certainly a sad story for me to, to hear, um, you know, because... I do very much want to be there for all my friends, and you know, but it's a story in the past, and I can't necessarily do that. So, and and he never met her, and that's the thing is he never met her, and he never will. And there was a part of me that, when she died, I believed I couldn't be with anyone who hadn't met her or hadn't known me before her. I suppose why. Um, because she was such an important figure in my life. She was the most important figure in my life, and she probably always will be. So for them to deeply understand you, they would have had to understand her. Yes, and ha me in the context of her, I think. Help, help me understand why that would be necessary. I, 
I always joke that I didn't have a personality before she died. Um, but it's, it's true, kind of. I was such a different person. All of my opinions were her opinions, all, and not because she forced them on me, but because I wanted to please her. I wanted to be like her. And she was always constantly telling me, you're like your dad, and it's bad. So from an early age, I equated with being like my dad with being bad and being like my mom with being good. And I, I just wanted to be like her. I wanted to be her. I wanted to be good at all of the things that she was good at. And she was good at basically everything. Um, she was incredibly intelligent and um, very caring and overly caring. She was a helicopter parent, and I didn't realize that until later. But I just... And I hate the, the term overly caring. I know it's there's no better term for it. Um, there's got to be a better one, though. And I'm not blaming you. Stifling. I, she was stifling. Yes, that's a great, that's a great one, which, yeah. which is not caring, you know no. what I mean, in a way. Or, or it's, it's, you know, out of ignorance, um, uh, you know, not knowing that that's yeah. not love. Yeah, it's scrutinizing somebody with a microscope to the point of squishing them. <laughs> You know, you're you're getting you're too close, I guess. Um, and our relationship was so complex and shaped me because I was nothing without her. And I thought that I I really thought that I really thought that I was nothing without her and that without her, I had no I had nothing. I didn't have a sense of self. I didn't have a sense of opinions. Where would I get my opinions from? Where would I start to explain myself um, in a sense, I think it's, I think it's funny because it's not at all true now, but I could introduce someone to my mother and the school system I grew up in and say, you know, everything you need to know about me wow. because those shaped who I was, my friends and my mom shaped all of my opinions and everything I thought and everything I did. So did you not break out of that until your mom died? It started about six months before she died. She died of cancer, so it was a slow death, and we knew about six months before she mm -hmm. died. Um, so it started about at that time when I found out that she was dying, and I realized I realized this before she died. I, I realized I, I don't have a personality. I don't have a sense of self. I don't know what I'm going to do. And the sense of losing her obviously was, was grief, but it was also grief for myself because I didn't, I didn't have anything left over without her. And I considered myself because of that undateable, I guess. I, I didn't think partners would understand me um, without her. But the funny thing is having now been with somebody for three years who has never met her and he he has shaped me into the person that I've always wanted to be. Even when in the context of my mother, um, I I had always wanted to be somebody who could let go of things, who could be fun, who could joke about things, who didn't take myself so seriously, um, who didn't always have a ten year plan for their life, and like my mother did for me, mm -hmm. um, and. I've become more of that person. I'm a lot closer to that person now than I was four years ago, even like right before she died. And so I'm glad for it. I think I'm glad that 
I'm with someone who didn't know me before um, because it, it let me start with a clean slate. It let me, he saw me for the person that I could become and for the person that I was at the time that he met me. But he also, he also helped shape me. And I love him not only for who he is, but also for who he sees me as. Is everything that she just shared something that you already knew? Yeah, I, I think it is, and, and it's something that she's communicated to me before, yeah. and uh, That must feel really nice. Yeah, absolutely, it does. And uh, I think that, you know, when you first said it, you know, it shaped me the way, you know, that sounds like I'm molding, but, <laughs> you know, real, realistically, it's just, I kind of, I think those things came out naturally as, as my personality, and I kind of just tried to be myself, and I would see how Daisy would react to some things. And, uh, you know, sometimes if there was something that cause stress like an unplanned event that you know, may sound fun but it's also pretty last minute and you know you know all planning. part of the 10-year plan mm-hmm. yeah no uh, sure yeah the, the one hour plan do you want to go to a party tonight when the party starts at eight o'clock and it's seven thirty? that's not in my 10-year plan are you kidding me <laughs> yeah so a, a lot of that kind of thing um, you know and and seeing that and you know trying to i don't know i guess trying to see and just test test the waters of like well is this something that you know, it was just, you know, I guess at some point I realized that it was something that may have, have come from, you know, how she was brought up and, and just, you know, everything was very planned. And, and I don't really remember when the first time that, you know, maybe with class schedules or, or something. You I know. remember you had a group of friends show up at the house who I had never met before and you didn't tell me they were coming and I was just visiting. I wasn't even living there at this point. And it was pretty early in our relationship but there was like three or four people who just showed up at the door and I kind of asked you like, who's that? And I think you said, I don't know. And then I opened the door and there's just people who don't know who I am, who I didn't know who they were and I didn't know they were coming and you were on your computer and I had to entertain these people for like half an hour and I was so I was so depressed. I didn't want to talk to them. I didn't know who they were. Like I knew they were friends of yours, obviously pretty quickly. But and I got so angry at you after they left because you didn't tell me they were going to show up. And he's never done that since. Yeah, yes. <laughs> he's always warned me. <laughs> it is entirely possible that I had completely forgotten that they were coming. Oh, I know. Yeah, um, I, and that's the problem is he has a terrible memory. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's a that, terrible but memory. that doesn't make it any less no. shitty for you when, oh, that, no. when that happens. No. I mean, yeah, that <laughs> seems like a, pr- a pretty rational uh, reaction uh, for that, especially for somebody with Anxious. anxiety. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, One thing that I thought might be interesting to mention was, you know, you were, you were talking about just communication with you and your mom and looking you know, through life through that lens, but... Communication-wise, when you know when you were young, your mom was the only person that you could communicate with, right? Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, and where was yeah. your dad during all of this? Uh, my parents stayed together for their entire marriage, but he, because my mom was so overly present in raising me, my dad was, and my dad just didn't step up. He wasn't not present for my childhood. He was at every single dance performance, every event, every you know he would drive me to school, um, but. You know, those drives to school, we were listening to the radio and we were listening to stock reports. So he was physically present. He was physically present, um, but he 
didn't really make an effort to get to know me, I guess. And yeah. I didn't make an effort to get to know him because I was so focused on pleasing my mom. Yeah. And my mom took the place of both parents and he was, he was there. He showed up for me physically, but not emotionally. Yeah. Um, but what Corey's referencing is I, well, my, my mother, English was her second language. Obviously she was an immigrant, um, but her English was very good, but she was very insistent that I learn Mandarin and from now I might say Chinese instead of Mandarin. Um, Since it's the official language now. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but I I learned Mandarin first. It was my first language. Um, now English is a much better language for me. It's a lot more natural to me. Um, I am still fluent in, in Mandarin, but I, I learned it first. And I had a nanny who only spoke Mandarin, and my mom would only speak Mandarin to me because she wanted me to be bilingual. And she was so afraid that I wouldn't be because she wanted me to be able to talk to my family because we had so much family back in Taiwan. She wanted me to maintain that culture. And she knew it would be a really important skill. I don't think she really anticipated the rise of China the way it has, but um, she, she knew that knowing both languages would be really important. So, so she, she really kind of only communicated with me in Mandarin and to the point where even if I responded in English, she wouldn't respond and would just kind of look at me or tell me to respond in Chinese until mm. I actually did. Um, which is why I am still fluent in the language, even if only one of my parents spoke the language. So I'm really thankful for it, but, um, but it, it's true. I was only able to speak to her for the first two, three years of my life. I didn't really speak English until maybe the middle of preschool. Um, I walked up to my preschool teacher and started speaking Chinese <laughs> because I didn't know the difference between the two languages. And it was, I was a lot better, um, at Mandarin at that time. And, uh, how is Taiwan different than mainland, uh, China? Um, the, in terms of the languages, um, and, and um, it is the government, different yeah um so the the current taiwanese government is the government that left mainland china when mao zedong took over in china so the communist government in china or they're not going to call themselves that now but the communist government in china is new and all of the old culture and the old language and the old government literally picked up and moved to taiwan so a lot of ancient chinese artifacts um traditional Chinese, the written language, um, or traditional Mandarin, I suppose, um, is written in Taiwan. And the nationalist government of China is currently residing in Taiwan. Um, so they are separate countries, although China definitely lays claim to Taiwan, and Taiwan is too small to retaliate, really. Mm. Um, like, Taiwan enters the Olympics as Chinese Taipei. They don't, they're not allowed to enter as Taiwan. And that, that angers me every time. Every mm -hmm. time I see that. Every single Olympics, when I see that come on, I'm, my country can't even enter as themselves. Um, but that being said, when I say traditional Chinese, it's um, the written language, the characters are a lot more complex. And the, the government that Mao started, the communist government, 
simplified the characters. It's the language is literally called simplified Chinese, um, where the characters are a lot quicker to write um, because there's less strokes. Uh, but it loses a lot of the the meaning and the lyricism, I guess, in each character. Um, yeah, so I, I really respect the Taiwanese for maintaining traditional Chinese culture. So what do what does the the mainland uh, Chinese government consider Taiwan to be, and what does Taiwan consider itself to be? I think the short answer I'm not hugely well-versed in the politics of China and Taiwan. But the, the short answer would be Taiwan thinks they're their own country and China claims that Taiwan's a part of China. So are they integrated financially? No. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're, so there's a they're reality still... there that is right. Taiwan's <laughs> reality. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there are large countries, um, like the U.S., I think, supports Taiwan as a separate country, although... Our trade relations with China may change that soon. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But um, I think the world and the United Nations in particular recognizes Taiwan as a separate country. And um, that may have changed recently. I'm not sure. But it doesn't, it hasn't played much of a, there, there wasn't much importance, I guess, placed on that in, in my family. So um, the only difference I know that's really been apparent to me is when I speak Chinese, I have a Taiwanese accent. That's, okay. that's all I know. <laughs> um, say something to the listener in uh, Mandarin, and then uh, after the episode is over, reveal what it was that you said. Something to the regular oh, no. listener that only, that only they might uh, understand. Any, oh. any of the, you know, any of the, kind of inside uh, jokes about <laughs> characters or callback, things we reference um, or, or, or call back. You don't have to if, if it feels like I'm putting you on the spot no, too much. Uh, well, I, I haven't spoken in so long. I have nobody to talk to. <laughs> that, that's the problem. When my yes. mom died, I had nobody to talk to. Um, and now living in a primarily white area, I still have no one to talk to. And wow, that literally just brought on another surge of those like nervous. Yeah. Yeah. Describe like, what's what's going on inside you physically, what you're experiencing. I right mean, now. my like I can feel so much more blood going to my head and I know my hand is shaking wow. and I'm so scared that my voice is going to start shaking and it's going down now a little yeah. bit. Um, but yeah, my my main test is I hold my hand up yeah. and it's, it's shaking and I get low blood sugar. Um, sometimes I get hypoglycemic and it feels like that. It feels like I've lost all of the sugar in my bloodstream. It's just gone Mm. straight into my cells and I'm in that fight or flight response and I'm, I just need to get out of there. (laughs) That happens a lot when people ask me to speak Mandarin. I think because when I say I'm fluent, I'm always take that with a grain of salt. Like I I'm fluent, but I, I'm so scared that I'm going to be found out as a fraud that like somebody will hear me speak and then say, Oh no, you're not. So if you're not, (laughs) if you're not perfect, it's a mistake. Yes. Oh, definitely. And and it's a reflection of who you are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and of my entire worth and my entire being. And I no longer deserve space on the planet. If somebody tells me that I can't and that I'm not fluent and that I just claimed that I was. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm acting like I'm surprised, like I don't relate to that <laughs> at all. <laughs> but um, let's talk about uh, polyamory. Give me kind of the the arc in your relationship of um, for both of you, how you came to it, how you navigate it, uh, your experiences in it. Um, um, how other people have commented on your experiences and your relationship, the whole, the whole shebang. Yeah. Um, we've always been this way. So we started our relationship as well, technically open. We called it an open relationship for a long time and then recently shifted to the polyamorous label, um, after a couple conversations and, and what would the difference be between uh, open and polyamorous? An open relationship, um, and the, the terms I'm going to use are uh, common, I guess, in the polyamory community. So um, I consider Corey to be my primary partner, um, who is the person that you might cohabitate with, the person you spend most of your time with, the person that if I were in a monogamous relationship, he, he would be the person that I'm right. seeing. Um, He's your main jam. Yes, exactly. Um, and then... Anybody outside of that are their secondary partners or even um, some polyamorous communities will structure their relationships in hierarchies. Um, so there might even be tertiary partners. And so those are people that you in an open relationship, you're not allowed to have an emotional connection with those secondary and tertiary ah. partners. You're not allowed to fall in love with them. You're um, and not not to say not allowed, but that's not that's not what open relationship typically means. That's not the game plan. Yeah. Usually the, the short answer is in an open relationship, you have friends with benefits. You have, you have sex outside the relationship um, and maybe emotional connection, but you don't necessarily have, there's no love outside the relationship. The love is kept within the relationship. Okay. Whereas polyamory, um, the word itself lends to, um, it means multiple loves. So you're, quote unquote, allowed to fall in love with multiple people. Um, but in the context of our relationship, we consider each other our primary primary partners. And um, that may shift over time. We're not sure. Um, neither of us has met anyone else that we've fallen in love with. Um, I've seen the potential for it. And I don't know. I'm sure you've seen potential for dating other people or perhaps like being able to see yourself falling in love with someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, but it hasn't happened yet. And by that, do you mean that, um, there's been physical relations with other people, but it hasn't progressed to the point where you wanted to establish a relationship with them or there hasn't even been physical, um, intimacy with people. No, we, we both, we both have sex outside the relationship. Um, I've definitely met people and had friendships with people that I've considered progressing into another relationship. Um, and the one time that that has happened since we've become polyamorous, it was even when I put it out there as a possibility, it was shut down by that person. So, and that's the thing is not many people are going to want to be a secondary partner to someone right. when you're starting a relationship with someone it doesn't feel good to already be second yeah um everybody wants to be first to someone and that's fair it's probably 
more attractive, though, to somebody else who has a primary partner. Exactly. Yeah. And I think some of the most rewarding relationships I've had with other people, and I think possibly for Corey as well, have been with people who have either been polyamorous before or are currently in open relationships or or exploring the possibility or um, and it's also interesting and to have conversations with them about their experience of polyamory because the thing about monogamy it's not it is difficult for some people but it's easy because there are hard rules you're not allowed to have sex with anyone you're not allowed to fall in love with anyone and that's it that's you know there there's some gray areas you know are you allowed to flirt with other people if you don't really mean it i'm sure that'll really bother some people whereas mm-hmm. others will be totally fine with it but monogamy has hard fast rules that everyone in society can list off you know like we can pretty much say that cheating is going to in a monogamous relationship is you know, having any kind of intimate physical contact with another person outside of the relationship. And that's different for us. Um, and that's different for anyone in any kind of alternative relationship, because you just saying that you're in an open relationship doesn't mean anything. You have to explain yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, that's the biggest hurdle for me is every single time I meet somebody and tell them, or I'm on a dating app and I say, I'm in an open relationship, I'm in a polyamorous relationship, that's a hurdle I have to cross. Um, somebody's gonna ask, what is an open relationship? Or what do you mean by open relationship? Or what's your open relationship like? Um, and that's not always a question I enjoy answering, even though I enjoy educating people who are open to the idea. Um, I. I don't always like explaining myself. Does it get tiring? It does. Yeah. It gets really tiring, especially, um, I know, I know Corey enjoys the sort of educational debate, um, probably more than I do. Um, but I, because pe- people take exception. They do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most common response I've gotten is, wow, like props to you for being able to do that, but I could never. And even from people who are willing to be intimate with me, even with um, men and women who want to, you know, kiss me or have sex with me, they'll say, I could never do that for myself. And I'm like, then why do you want to be intimate with me? Then why is that okay? Like, and there have been people who have said no to me because it doesn't fit into their morals and not that they want to impose on me, they, they say, you know, you do whatever makes you happy. And I'm very glad that I haven't met anybody who's so resistant that they shame me. Although I don't think I would feel shamed by that person. I think also your generation is much more, uh, open to the idea of it than previous generations. Um, especially living in California. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think, and maybe this is a leap, but do you think um, the way sex has become so common, pornography, etc., what sex means to people because of the internet and the effects of it, do you think that has influenced at all people's idea of what sex means to, to your generation? I think it might less be about sex and more about 
being an individual. I think I've noticed in the 90s even when when I was growing up uh, that being a part of the pack, being a part of the herd, wearing the same shoes um, or the same jacket, um, that was that was trendy. Whereas now, I mean, there are still trends, but it's much more. It's the trend now is individuality. The train, the trend is, you know, having labels that are against the norm um, in younger generations, and I think that. I mean, there have been studies even that millennials are having less sex. <laughs> and um, I mean, we don't have time. We can we can barely afford rent. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's I think it's more about being an individual. Um, people are a lot more willing to have conversations about what makes everyone different because everyone's so much less worried about fitting in. Do you think some of that is because the financial future picture for your generation? is uh, less optimistic than it was for future generations. And you're like, well, we're going to have so- have to find something uh, worth uh, that, that we can control in our lives. Oh, uh, yeah. What's we're, it going to be? We're financially fucked. <laughs> um, and I think I'm, I haven't met a millennial that doesn't have debt. <laughs> yeah. And we... So I think... And I'm also thinking in terms of our government and how um, it, the... You know the debt is it? I don't know, trillion, couple of trillion dollars. <laughs> yeah. Somebody's going to have to pay for that. And you know, when you guys be- become retirement age, social security is decimated. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> who who knows? But it certainly doesn't look uh, yeah. like your generation is going to retire the same way previous generations are are going to. I think this is our generational generational rebellion. Um, I every generation has its hot topic Mm -hmm. of rebellion and whether it's you know the gays or whether um so for us it's everything i think it's to be alternative and so we're opening the door here to alternative relationships Mm -hmm. and um and i think it's a it's a beautiful thing to start a conversation even though it's boiled down to internet wars and the comment section being the worst place of any article (laughs) but it's starting a conversation and being open to having a conversation i think is a unique gift and it's it's unique to the millennial generation how was the subject of uh having the type of relationship you do uh brought up between you two i brought it up And we, I was living in LA at the time and he was living two hours away from me and I was making that commute and he didn't have a car at the time. And I was making that commute two times a month and I wanted some level of commitment, not maybe not commitment, but I just really wanted to know that we had a future together and neither of us really wanted to let go of the other. And we, I mean, the the beginning of our relationship was textbook romance uh, that you would hear in a rom-com even Mm -hmm. that we, you know, I had accidentally said, I love you. 
after seven days and he said it back after nine days and what do you mean accidentally said i love you oh it was after sex (laughs) meaning it wasn't genuine or accidentally you let it slip i let it slip as a joke and then he caught it and made fun of me for it and but it wasn't uncomfortable what do you mean though you let it slip as a joke because those sound like one is intentional and the other is accidental it was it was half intentional and half accidental i think i i had let it i had let myself go in that moment because i knew i could laugh it off if he responded really poorly um i just kind of went like i love you (laughs) and then so half half (laughs) vulnerable way of testing the waters yes Yes. (laughs) and he he called me out on that yeah what did you say Corey? (laughs) you know I think it was in a lighthearted way. I certainly wasn't making, oh, trying no. to make her feel bad for it. Not at all. But I think I was like, oh, what was that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> he made me say it again. <laughs> I don't know how I'd make you, but I was interested to see if you would. <laughs> um, so then how did it proceed? What, right. what, are, what are some uh, moments from the relationship uh, that relate to the type of relationship that you chose Um, I guess we just knew we were going to be distanced for at least the next year. I had just signed a lease that was for a year in LA and he was pretty set on where he was. And I, we, neither of us saw it moving to the other since we had literally only met in the previous month. And we had sort of been talking about wanting to, you know, I think we both, we didn't want to let go. There was something special there. And then, so I guess I brought it up. I I just said like, oh, what about an open relationship? Because he didn't want to commit to a closed relationship. And honestly, neither did I. I didn't want to, and when I say closed, I mean monogamous, I suppose. Um, I, we were both, I was starting my career. I was fresh out of college and I didn't have time or the ability to put into starting a relationship that was starting long distance. And he had just gotten out of a year and a half relationship and I guess didn't, didn't want to get into another one. So would it be fair to say that you didn't want to let each other go, but you wanted your physical needs, uh, to be met without, uh, a lot yeah. of gas money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's, that's part of it. And I mean, from, from my perspective, when I would come down to visit, you know, and, and I would be taking the train down, and uh, you know, she'd be driving well, like half an hour or so to come pick me up at the train station, and I'd be spending time there. And and uh, you know, it was. I mean, I don't mind the train; I'll sleep halfway on it. But um, it's it was definitely a time commitment that um, you know, yeah, with with physical needs that that we both wanted met, it was tough to kind of to find that way and you know it it sounds sometimes like you know for for other distance relationships you know that are significantly longer longer distance (laughs) that you know it's like oh what are we complaining about but you know i think because it was such a fresh relationship and it was something that we both wanted to we knew if we were in the same area that we would both certainly see see it through that it it was tough we didn't want to let it go and i think that um you know making we both wanted to make it work, and we just wanted to find how it could with, with our needs being met. And I think that's why when it was suggested, you know, maybe let's try an open relationship. And Daisy had 
told me that it's something that she had, you know, done a little bit in the past yeah. with previous boyfriends over well, breaks. I was, was going to bring that up that yeah. I had offered it as an option to, I had been in two serious relationships before Corey and I had offered it as an option to both of those boyfriends when we were, because I had dated both of them during high school and then college um, over the summer that when we couldn't see each other as often, I had offered to open the relationship and both times it was met with no. Um, although the second one, he kind of said like, you know, you can if you want, but I don't think I'm going to find anyone that I want to be with more than you. And you know, that's, so that was really sweet, I guess. <laughs> but it was frustrating to me, I guess I was like, well, now I have to wait. <laughs> um, Even but, though he gave you uh, permission or... Uh, kind of. I, I knew he wouldn't be happy about it. Yeah. And I, I didn't want him to hold that over me. And I guess that was just a fear of mine. I don't even know if he would have. Um, I don't see him as that kind of person. But I was just afraid, like, oh, he could he could have that over me. You know, what if he gets angry about it eventually? What if he can use that against me eventually? I wanted to be the perfect girlfriend. I had to be the perfect girlfriend. So I didn't. Um, and I wanted it to be very equal, but in this case, I, neither of us wanted to start a relationship long distance, I guess. Um, and it wasn't a monogamous relationship, long distance. Right. And I, I really ref want to refrain from saying it was a way of testing the waters. And a lot of people see it as that, um, it wasn't a lesser commitment. It was just a way to to meet all of our needs. I think the need to like physical needs, sexual needs, but also the need to connect with each other and stay together. It was, it was our way of starting a relationship. What are all the type of needs that aren't met in your primary relationship that you seek outside of it? I think that's very different for both of us. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to try and find, I'm always seeking a really deep emotional connection with someone, not necessarily that I would fall in love with someone, but I really, I, I look for kindred spirits, I guess. And I am much more attracted to conversation and connection. And that's, what's going to make me want to be with someone sexually. Um, I don't just see somebody pass on the street and say like, Oh, I really want to have sex with that person. That just doesn't happen for me. And, or rarely. And like, I don't have a celebrity crush. Mm. And so I'm always looking for a really deep connection and somebody that I will stay friends with for years. And I am still friends with a lot of people that have been, um, I guess a little transient that they've, I met them when they were single or when they were in open relationships and now they've transitioned into a closed relationship or now they're in a relationship and they're not single. And, but I'm still friends with them because we have that really deep connection. And so that's, I think I'm always seeking more. Um, I always I want more connection. And, um, I think something that we struggle with, we've gotten a lot better, but we've always struggled with communication and we communicate very differently. And, and if we haven't mentioned it, they live in the same town now. Yeah, we actually live in the same house now. The same house yeah. now. So, um, uh, I, I take it that what you're saying is there's also not enough connection in one relationship, not enough emotional variety in, in yeah. one relationship. So it's not about, you know, a different body part or no. look 
or something. It's just about um, a different human being's um, vibe, soul, yeah. um, sense of humor, how they look at the world, uh, you know, all the things that m- make somebody's personality. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we approach that from different ways, I guess. Um, but yeah, maybe do you want to talk about it? Yeah. I mean, I think that certainly like, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking to go do something more thrill seeking with somebody then you know, and that could just be as a friend also, but you know, as far as needs being met, you know, I know that Daisy's probably not the, the person that I'm going to necessarily go do that. Although I will certainly invite her. I can't even do roller coasters. <laughs> we've, we've been talking about six flags for a while, but uh, it hasn't happened yet. But, um, but yeah, I mean that, that may not be something that, um, you know, I go do with Daisy and, and it doesn't necessarily mean I'm doing it with somebody that I have, you know, uh, more of an emotional you know, connection with. Um, but, you know, maybe just somebody else that I, I you know, that fills that need and in and, and some other ways, you know, too, that's with, um, with people that I guess, you know, maybe it's just a friends with benefits kind of scenario or you know, however that secondary relationship is structured. It's just maybe a different need, you know, maybe it's somebody that I, um, you know, might go play soccer with or, or go on a hike or politics. sometimes it's, yeah, <laughs> politics, talking politics. Um, something that, that I think if I talked about as much with Daisy as I, you know, think about myself, she would go insane. <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah, I, we are very different people. Um, even though we're both in the arts and we're both creative and, um, I think we have a lot of the same core beliefs and obviously there's love in our relationship, but we, we have different interests. Um, we came from different places and, um, we're, we have different careers. So I think even in a monogamous relationship, you're going to supplement quote unquote, that relationship with friends and with family and with other groups and activities right. and you're filling your life with the things that you love and one person's not going to meet 100% of your needs mm-hmm. and i think to me why not also be intimate with someone that you can share those things with so so what are specifically some of the needs that you have discovered in other people that um would it be that they are in addition to, or it's something that just isn't in your relationship that you consciously knew you wanted to try to find somewhere else? I think both. Um, I think there's something about being with somebody outside of the relationship that teaches you exactly how you feel about your partner. And I've, I've heard that from people who've cheated on their partners, and I've heard that from people in relationships like ours. But... I don't love him any less when I'm with someone else and I don't forget that I love him, but being with somebody else and it's not even comparing two people. It's coming home to that familiarity, Mm -hmm. I guess, and being able to experience familiarity and newness and to, you know, have that rush of creating a new relationship. So kind of like a, uh, maybe this is crass, but a palate cleanser? Kind of, I guess. <laughs> um, everybody needs a break. Yeah, I, I, uh, Corey's kind of going, <laughs> trying to feel that one out, but maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Are you feeling that one out because you're worried I'm going to get mad about it? No. Okay. <laughs> um, how is it handled when one of you uh, has found somebody you want to have uh, sex with, and 
the other person um, maybe is in a place where they want you in that time frame. I think we, you know, this this kind of changed when we moved in uh, with one another because, you know, certainly the amount of time we were allow, you know, able to spend with one another shifted from being distanced and seeing each other maybe on weekends to being, you know, pretty much able to see one another at least, you know, in the mornings, you know, some days, you know, well, at least once a day, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes when we're more busy, we, we don't have that time where we can be together. Um, not that we have to be together all the time, but we... Um, we we try to prioritize the time that we can we can spend with one another and and i i certainly try to schedule any time that i'm going to meet up with somebody you know i do the same with friends for a time that you know maybe i can either do that with daisy if it's a friend or or just you know a time that she's busy at work or or doing something that you know kind of maybe helps her feel like i'm not prioritizing prioritizing time with somebody else over time that i could be spending with her i got you so did you mean that there are times when it's another person and the two of you together? If it's, I suppose if it's a more of just like a, a friend, but yeah, I guess That's the happened. question. Yeah, yeah. It has. And there have been people who, like my current best friend is somebody that he used to be intimate with and it's not happening now and that's not because of the friendship that I have with her, but it's, it's happened. Um, and that's not something we're against and, in a sense, if if the other partner doesn't want to meet me or if I don't want to meet them, that's a red flag to me. Um, or I, I guess in the opposite, if my other partner doesn't want to meet him or if he doesn't want to meet them, which hasn't ever happened, um, that's that's somebody that I shouldn't be with because they're not they're denying something about the relationship. They're trying to ignore it. And there have been situations where he's been with a girl who kind of tries to boyfriend borrow in a sense Mm. where um you know she doesn't want to hear about me or she you know in some way tries to deny the relationship that we have and that always bothers both of us a lot yeah i was gonna say if you were gonna say bothers me i mean bothers you it bothers me too like a lot like that to me is (laughs) big red flag because i mean it's just it kind of seems, yeah, like they're denying the kind of relationship that we have. And in a way, it seems disrespectful to me. It's incredibly disrespectful. And there's nothing but trust in our relationship. And if you can't trust somebody involved with us, or if we can't trust each other, there's no point. How do you handle it? When, do, you, do you share everything with each other? What an experience was like? Um, the, the fact that you are going to meet somebody to to do something is there are there ever times when you share it after the fact because it wasn't planned how does the other person feel about that i think and a ninth question (laughs) i think this has also changed a lot um between being long distance and now living together um when we were long distance we could tell each other after the fact um but it was we ran into some snags when I would get upset because I hadn't heard about this girl before. And it's like, wait, I haven't even, you haven't even mentioned this person and now you've already had sex with them. Are you kidding me? Like that's, that seems strange to me. If it's somebody that you have had an ongoing, you know, conversational relationship or even meeting relationship with, and I would think that you would talk about them before 
having sex with them, like with your primary partner. Um, so, and obviously that wasn't necessarily his fault. And you can talk about that if you want. Well, I was just going to say, those aren't typically the, the, like you were saying, the, the unplanned times, those are typically the, the, the unplanned times where I, you know, didn't think that that was necessarily going to happen. And right. then, you know, we, yeah, we do have a, and would it be with a stranger? Sometimes? No, I mean, usually Friends. not. Be, yeah. Yeah. Usually. <laughs> okay. I mean, somebody that I know, but didn't necessarily think that, that it might progress, uh, you know, between us to, to either having sex, you know, or I guess there's no either there just having sex. Um, and that's something that, you know, we immediately share after, mm-hmm. but you know, I certainly, I, I like to try to share that there is some kind of, you know, communicate or uh, a connection between that person if it is something I think is going to progress so that yeah. he feels informed. I'll usually get a text that, you know, I don't know if we're, if anything is going to happen, but it might. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I think I've told him now that what I'm most comfortable with and mostly I'm setting the boundaries here. Um, he seems to be more or less fine with anything as long as I am honest mm-hmm. about everything. And if I follow my own rules, if I'm breaking my own rules, that's a, that's a problem. But, um, for instance, what would some rules be? And are there any you've ever broken? Um, so this one that I'm referencing, I guess, is that I would like to know about someone, um, before he meets them and that I would like to know whenever the status of their relationship changes. Mm -hmm. So when, you know, if he's just meeting them and they only talk the first time, like, I want to know that, like you're, you're just friends. And then if you kiss, like, I want to, I want to know that because then you're not no longer just friends. And if you go from that to, you know, having some sort of sex, I'd want to know that too, because then that's also a progression in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And then also if you progress backwards, I guess, if you stop having sex, like I'm not going to assume every single time he sees somebody, oh, they're having sex. Like, oh, are they having sex? Like, what did they do this time? Like, I don't, I don't need to know, but the possibility is there because they've done it before. But you know, if they stop having sex, like that's something that I would want to know because you know, now they're just friends. Um, so I I guess I just want to be updated on the status of all of the existing relationships. And I do the same, although I tend to be talking to a lot less people because it drains me. I'm an introvert and I can't keep up with that many conversations and he can multitask with the best of them and Mm -hmm. he can, he can maintain, you know, 10 conversations on five different dating apps and be totally fine. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he can keep up with everybody and I'm happy for you and I'm glad you can do that, but I just can't. Um, so I have a lot less updating to do. Um, and, and how specific do you get in sharing an experience with the other person? Sometimes it can be really specific. Um, other times I think he can gauge that I'm not happy hearing about it and he won't say anything. Um, why might that be? Um, sometimes it's a person that I haven't liked. Sometimes I'm just in a bad headspace in general and, um, and I don't want to hear about it and he can sense that. Um, yeah, it gets, it's, that gets tough to navigate sometimes because it's, it's hard to tell, I guess, sometimes whether it's, um, you know, whether it was just, you know, I had a bad day at work and maybe, you know, it's just not something I want to hear about right now or if it's how she may feel about the person. And, and sometimes I think that's where communication, we could certainly improve on like which of those two might it be, you know, so that I can avoid in the future, like, oh, you had a great day at work and now I'm telling you the same kind of thing. And, oh, it's having that same effect. Didn't realize that it was Mm -hmm. the person, not the day. So I think, you know, 
that's I mean I try to I think that when we um, were long distance it, it was it was different in the sense that like if we had a new experience um, with somebody then we would share it with each other because you know it was it was another way we could bring back new experiences to the relationship and improve our relationship and you know maybe it was something we had discovered about ourselves you know with somebody else that we then want to share with one another um, so I think we would you know bring experiences that we would have back to our relationship and then I guess that wasn't different, you know, distance um, from from now. We still do that. It was just because we were with more people when we were, you know, distance because of the time we weren't together. It, it kind of we found those those opportunities more. I guess that's not something I necessarily miss, but it was just a difference. What were some of the things that you maybe experienced outside of your primary relationship that then you brought into your primary relationship because it was something you discovered and you thought, oh, this will might expand our connection or our fun or whatever yeah. i can think about in la oh um yeah i had a couple of um connections with i guess um in a tiny way with the bdsm community in la mm -hmm. and i went to um i don't know if i want to say the name on the podcast but um, I went to a dungeon, a popular dungeon, mm -hmm. and I was taken by a member and um, met. I've always had a feeling or just some kind of inclination towards being submissive, even mm -hmm. though that was something I always really hated about myself because I love controlling every minute aspect of my life. I'm a control freak about myself, not about anyone else. I don't need to control anyone else, but I need to control me. And you understand, by the way, that it's usually somebody's kink is the opposite of what yeah. they want in real life. It's <gasps> usually about things that make them, them anxious. And that's why it's so shameful, I guess. And that's why it's so difficult to accept those things sometimes. Why would, why um, would you feel shame about that? Um, because... It felt so disempowering, I guess, and because I was so against things like being catcalled or being objectified or, you know, and then I was like, oh, but sexually I want somebody to objectify me. And then I was like, why? Why do I want that? That's that's gross. I, like, no, because you're choosing to do it and then you have control over it because you're making the choice. To me, that's that's yeah, what it is. You maybe. are taking this thing that you're anxious about and you're saying, I I'm going to decide when and in what manner and with whom, yeah. which to me is what makes it so hot, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And maybe it's just my way of replaying those situations and doing it better. Um, but uh, so I met uh, a dominant that um, we had a very casual relationship um, as people, but um, it was sexual as well. Um, and I guess those experiences... I brought back to Corey and um, we talked about it and we didn't, I mean, there hasn't been a huge level of experimentation there because teaching somebody to be a dominant as a submissive isn't really... It's kind it, of dominant. It, it, you, you, need, you need a dominant. You kind of need somebody to model after and it's like, yes. well, I can't... You know, I, I know what I like, but I can't necessarily tell you how to hit me. <laughs> yeah. Like, because I, I don't know how to hit me yeah. because I don't do the hitting. Um, and part so. of the, the, the joy in, in role playing or, or kink is wondering how this person mm -hmm. is going to express it. That's yeah. part of the the 
unplanned part, even if you say, you know, we're going to do this and this and this, mm-hmm. how it's going to unfold, yeah. the manner, the style, the yeah, feel, all the things that you can't predict, it, to mm-hmm. me, is what makes it exciting. Yeah. Um, but it de- I did bring him on to FetLife, mm-hmm. um, which is the online, the biggest online kink community kind of Facebook style um, community. And, uh, and I think you've met people off of FetLife. Uh, yeah. yeah. So um, he never came to the dungeon with me. I guess that's something we could explore in the future, although it's mm-hmm. a bit of a drive. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, that's, that's opened doors, I suppose. I opened conversations and neither of us really knew what to do about that like those kinks that and so having that free reign to explore with somebody who did know who could teach me who you know had a literal bag of tricks and could show me exactly what I liked and what I didn't like you know I can't just walk into a sex shop and say can you hit me with 20 different paddles and I can pick which one I want (laughs) Um, so it was a lot easier with somebody who had all of you know we didn't have to go through the the money to like you know buy 20 different paddles and choose right. one. Um, so it was, it was a lot quicker of a learning curve, I guess. And it was easier to bring that back and say like, I really like vampire gloves, <laughs> like, yeah. but we still need to get those. <laughs> yeah. What are vampire gloves? Um, I, my, my partner had these leather gloves that had studs that were sharp, um, on the sort of the palms and on the fingertips. Um, and it's sort of a, it's, called sensation play, I guess, where it's, it's more tactile and less about striking. Um, you're not going to hit somebody with a handful of spikes, but you're just going to run it lightly over their skin and possibly scratch them. And it's, um, it's it's enticing. (laughs) Those those could also be called definitely not masturbation gloves. Yes, (laughs) that would, that would definitely, that would be a couple scratches. You don't want to explain to your ER doctor. Does jealousy come up for either of you? Has it come up and how have you handled it? And by the way, before you answer that, I was just sitting here listening to you guys thinking, you know, if if somebody who is really conservative um, uh, were heard your conversation or just heard that you guys were polyamorous, there would be this judgment towards you. Mm-hmm. And I've All been here for an hour and 15 minutes talking to you, and you guys have probably shared more intimacy out loud than some of the people who would judge you have shared with their partner in their entire probably marriage. <laughs> and I think that's the thing about being polyamorous is it's even it's less for me, what I get outside of the relationship and more what it brings to the relationship, that openness, that honesty, that need for communication, because I'm much more likely to just hold it up inside of me and never talk about it. And I'm perfectly happy to live with repression, (laughs) but I, I have to talk about it. I have to force myself to say all of the things that I don't want to say. And what, what have been some of the most difficult ones? And then answer the jealousy questions if, if, if you can. I mean, I think it's almost the same question to me. Um, I struggle with jealousy a lot. 
And that seems like a nightmare in a polyamorous it is. relationship. I do not suggest being codependent and polyamorous. It's terrible. Yes. Um, it's don't do it. Don't really don't do it. <laughs> if you grew up with a codependent, complex relationship with your mother, do not get into a polyamorous relationship without some very deep soul searching outside of that relationship beforehand. And I would and imagine some, some clear boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm only now, literally three years into the relationship, learning to set boundaries. And I, are you comfortable talking about moving? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have recently brought up the possibility of moving out because I realized that there, it's difficult to be codependent with someone and he's not codependent with me. He's the most independent person I've ever met in my freaking life. <laughs> sometimes it bothers me and sometimes it sometimes I admire you for it and sometimes I get so insecure. Um but it's it's difficult to get away from codependency when you live with the person that you're codependent with. Mm. And I, I think a lot of people will experience this with, you know, codependency within marriages or with their parents. Um but you you literally have to take yourself out of the situation. You have to physically step away sometimes. And I have to tell myself, no, like you just went into his room 20 minutes ago. Why do you have to go again? You know, why do you have to go meow in his ear again? <laughs> like you just did it. Like you just got the reassurance. You don't need it again. You know that he loves you. Nothing has changed in the past 20 minutes. Um, I have to physically hold myself back. And for some reason, I'm kind of an out of sight, out of mind person. And I've not that I would forget about him if I were to move out, but I think that urge would be a lot lessened and that somehow moving out would really take away that part of that dependence. And is there also a plan for you to work on your codependence? Um, there is, I've been with a therapist with better help actually for a while now, thanks to listening to the show. Yeah. Um, and she's, she's helped me with mostly my self worth and self love. And I think that's the biggest, that's the key to it because all of my jealousy and the codependence comes from a place of fear. It comes from the fear of losing him to someone else, even though, you know, that has nothing to do with polyamory. You can lose right. your partner in any kind of relationship. Um, but there, there's also this kind of, I, I, I believe it's kind of the, the belief inside of us that we alone on our own are not enough. Yes. And there's absolutely nothing more validating to that belief than being in a polyamorous relationship. <laughs> um, putting yourself in the situation where you're giving someone the permission to be with other people and put them before you sometimes, like that, that just screams, I'm not enough. And, but in a sense, that's why I do it. It forces me into those uncomfortable places and it, it builds me as a person and I wouldn't want the safety quote unquote of monogamy. So, so it's interesting. It's, it's almost like a, 
like a relationship version of BDSM. <laughs> you know oh, what man. I mean? I, like I, the, the, the very <laughs> thing that terrifies you is the thing that you are choosing uh, to do. Well, you have to face your fears in yeah. a sense. And I've never, I never am afraid that he doesn't love me. And I think that's the thing is I have the very basic belief and trust that he cares about me and that he loves me and he does not intend to hurt me. And even if it feels like he is hurting me and that he's choosing someone else over me, I know that that's not the case. It, is it ever that he doesn't love you enough or that he loves you, but he's going to, you're going to slip his mind eventually bit by bit. I think, I think it's that one. I think it, the latter. I think that, you know, he's forgetful anyway <laughs> and not about, not about me. Um, mm -hmm. he doesn't forget me, but I think he, there are things that you do that pique your interest every now and then, and that you get, a, I perceive that you get into obsessive phases with things. And I think that's common with people in general that mm. you do something really obsessively for a couple months and then you put it down. I can't relate to that at all. No, not at all. <laughs> Civilization. <laughs> but, um, I, and I'm not really that kind of person. It, it happens occasionally, but, um, I guess I'm afraid that I'm going to be a phase. I'm ah. afraid that he's picked me up and for some reason, he hasn't put me down for three years. But he will. But he will. Yeah. But he will. And it's going to be tomorrow. And it's going to be because of that chick he's texting right now. <laughs> oh, my God. That must be torture on a bad day. It is. But on a good day, it's reassuring because he's still here. Do you gain strength from walking through the bad head times where your brain is screaming that and then the next day or a week later you realize that you were uh, you know making too much of it i used to try to escape i think on the nights that he was with someone i would try to be with someone or i would try to not think about it i would do something to distract myself or you know something like that and i try so hard not to do that now i try to sit with my feelings i try and do something for myself, do some self-care, write about what I'm feeling and actually experience my emotions because my body will react before my brain does. And I'm in that fight or flight response mm. and my blood pressure and, and my, I'm shaking and I don't know why. And I'm, you know, on the verge of a panic attack. And, and you start speaking Mandarin. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's where I'm getting my practice from. That's why I'm still fluent. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, for, for some people, even, you know, just a, not for you, obviously going out for you isn't necessarily, you know, you see the self-care you found, but I think for some people that certainly might be the case, you know, to, and trying to put it out there for other people yeah, that may be in no. a similar situation, but, you know, for them, if, you know, I have a, a date or, you know, somebody, their partner has a date scheduled, you know, for them, self-care might be going out and doing something new with somebody, you know, or mm -hmm. you know, whether it's somebody new or, or somebody they know, I think. You know, certainly the self-care comes in a lot of different varieties. Yeah, yeah I think as long as it's not compulsive and you're not you know, doing it in a shutting the world out exactly. um, to deal with the emotion as, as opposed to you know, something that's just... There's a thin line between healthy and compulsive, I guess. Yeah, yeah there is. Yeah. When you find it, would you explain it to me? 
<laughs> I will, but it might take me several years. <laughs> I'll be playing golden tea uh, while you get it, so it may take me a while. My right wrist hurts from playing golden tea so much. I'm going to blame it on Herbert's death uh, almost oh. a year ago. Um, any other... Did did you answer um, the... You should talk about the jealousy question. Yeah, I actually, so that's one thing I wanted to uh, to bring up. When we were talking about kind of, you know, well, when we were distance and how jealousy kind of played into that, I think that there's, to me, there was always an important distinction between jealousy and envy and that when, you know, for instance, when Daisy would go to the dungeon with her partner down in L.A., there was always uh, more of a sense of, of envy where I, I, I wish that I could be there doing it with her um, but not jealousy in the sense that I think something was being taken away from me. I see. And I think that it, distinguishing between those really helps me not feel you know, upset about the situation because it's, it's something that you know, she gets to learn something. She, I know that she's going to bring it back to our relationship, and she's going to have a fun time, and that is not taking anything away from me. What a, what a great distinction, because uh, it's like a friend of yours could achieve something professionally and you can be happy for them and envious at the yes. same time and still be supportive. And I think this is a good time to bring up the term compersion, where you um, it's, it's a made-up word by the polyamorous community, I believe, um, but where you experience happiness for your partner's happiness, I guess. And it's possible to experience compersion and jealousy at the same time, or compersion and envy. And I think what Corey's explaining right now with the dungeon is pretty similar to compersion and envy, where you're, he was happy that I was happy and that I was having new experiences, but he was also envious that he couldn't be there himself experiencing it with me. And for me, I experienced so much less compersion, and it's, it has happened. There have been times where I am happy that he is doing something that is healthy for him and good for him and that he's having new experiences. But most of the time I feel like something is being taken away from me. And mm. I think that it's so healthy for him and he is built for this kind of relationship and I'm really happy for him. And mm. so in that sense, I experience compersion for him. I'm really happy that he is, he doesn't struggle really with our relationship, but I do. And, um, it's a choice that I make every day and it's not necessarily something that comes entirely naturally to me, but it fits into my morals where I don't, I believe that no one person should be anybody else's everything. And I don't want to be everything to him. I don't want him to be everything to me. It can be a lot of pressure. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure. And the, the thing about polyamory is you get to choose who your lover is and who your romantic partner is and who you cohabitate with, who you live with and who you raise children with and who the father of your children is. And those can all be different people or maybe one person can fill some of those roles and, you know, other people will fill other roles and that's okay. And it is expected in monogamy that you live with your partner that they are the parent of your children that they will raise your children with you and you know that you'll go through life together and that you'll be together forever that you'll get married and i think we just don't want to live by those expectations when you're feeling jealousy about uh him knowing he's with another person mm -hmm. are there images 
that are more emotional to you than other. I, I'm going to imagine there are things that you picture in your head that yeah. <laughs> uh, is happening. What are um, some of the ones that are emblematic of your anxiety? Would, would the thought of him kissing someone else passionately bother you more than him having intercourse or, or doing something um, else? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I, I think that what bothers me the most isn't really a particular image, but it's the idea that he'll find something that he likes better mm. and that I won't be able to give it to him, even if he brings it back to our relationship, that it's something that I won't, a, a need that I won't be able to fill. And I and that'll be the deal breaker for him. Yeah, and, and then then, and then he'll leave me and I'll be alone forever Speaking and I'll die Mandarin, alone. Yeah, yes. <laughs> not perfectly. <laughs> exactly. Half I'll be speaking Chinglish. <laughs> um, Which yeah, to me is a very interesting... Uh, is that news thing to you? To hear. No, it's not news to me. It's just always... It, it's very interesting for me to hear because, like, I mean, I, I enjoy talking about Daisy a lot when it's when it's the first date with somebody. <laughs> I will talk about Daisy because that's, that's a part of my thing. life. That's the thing. Like, I have no idea what he talks about when he says he talks about me. And then he says that I'm, it's nothing that I don't already know. And I'm like, what does yeah. that mean? <laughs> I mean, it's... it's, it's Can you, you share know, some of the things? Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of times, because I do photography, a lot of mm -hmm. times it's it's the, the photos that I take of, of Daisy. She's, you know dominating my uh, my instagram right now with uh, with dance photos yeah <laughs> but um it, you know i love to share those and and you know talking about what she does and just you know i think it's important to tell somebody about my partner because it's important to me um she's important to me and uh <laughs> you know I, I i think just about every date that i can think of that i've gone on in the last i don't know I, probably just about every date I've talked about you and and if ever there's a time where like somebody says like I you know can we not talk about that you know obviously if it's a you know an inappropriate time in the conversation yeah that might be a little weird but if it's just like I don't want to yeah, know don't talk that about Daisy, me during sex that's a little weird yeah I'm about, I'm about to come but listen about Daisy <laughs> <laughs> she gives really great massages <laughs> yeah yeah she, you know that? but she um you know if there's uh somebody that that just doesn't want to hear, just wants to deny her existence, and that mm -hmm. to me is a red, red but, flag. But what are some of the things that you say about her? I just, I guess just kind of just describing, you know, it's, it's almost like as I'm, you know, telling somebody about myself at the same time, I'll usually find ways to tell them about, you know, who Daisy is, because I think it explains something about me as well. So, you know, it's just whether it's, you know, yeah, she was a, she's a dancer, we were distance, you know, just kind of our history. Mm -hmm. Um, that's usually what I go through almost almost every date, I think. Mm. And, and all of everything. his friends say that he talks about me a lot. Yeah, mm. I do. I know you do. <laughs> does that feel good to know that? It does. It's also confusing because I, I want to believe, I still have this belief that I'm not interesting and that I don't have a personality and that I have nothing to share and that I'm not that I don't have any worth. So I still struggle with that self-image, even though I know consciously that I'm no longer that person and not that I ever was not worthy as a person, but I don't think of myself that way anymore, but I still have this image of myself in my head that's not accurate. Isn't that weird? It's, it's like 
you intellectually understand mm-hmm. that's not true, but you emotionally feel that way. I say that to him all the time. Like, I understand. I get it. I I know what you're saying, but I just don't feel that yeah. way. Or I just don't feel secure with that. And that is the duality of my life. That is... Yeah. That's my problem. That and, literally and, is my problem. And I think that's where getting help is so important, yes. be it a support group or therapy or just being transparent with friends, being vulnerable. Um, there's something about talking it out or journaling or doing activities that, you know, are self-care that that begin to bring it from the intellectual to the to the emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure the, there's got to be neuroscience behind it. But, right, uh, which is where I think something like CBT would really step in and help with. Yeah, and yeah. I think I would respond well to something like that. I haven't tried it, but maybe. You should. Yeah. You should. Uh, anything you gonna, else? You were going to say something. I, I've lost it now. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we do that all the, the memory, time to yeah. each other. Well, I've learned so much from this, and I'm really so... Um, um, I don't know what the... Uh, impressed sounds uh, a little... Um, <laughs> condescending no. but um just struck by the uh, the nuance uh and the depth that you are both able to articulate your needs and the lives that you've carved out for yourself and um it's um it's really cool and i i, I appreciate you um being so open and honest and and sharing your lives with me and with the with the listeners so thank you thank you Many, many thanks to Corey and Daisy. Um, As I mentioned, our show was sponsored today by Squarespace. If you guys have never checked it out, um, it is just a great tool to put together your own website. No matter what you're putting out there on the web, uh, whether you want to show pictures or sell products or you got a blog uh, whatever whatever you want. They have really cool templates uh, created by world-class designers, and it's really easy to put a website together. It's a lot of drag and drop. It's extremely intuitive. You can customize everything, uh, and it's all optimized for mobile uh, right out of the box. Uh, you can use their analytics to help you grow uh, in real time. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And if if you ever have a question, uh, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support, and uh, I highly recommend it. Um, I tried it out. Couldn't have been simpler, and I've never had a problem with it. So uh, go check it out. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. Uh, When you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code MENTAL. Destiny is calling. It says you need a new website. Make it with Squarespace. Um, I'm going to read an email that I got from, how does he want to be referred to? Mark. And he writes, you talk a lot about how much you enjoy your support groups, and I don't think you've ever talked about how you got involved with them. I'm interested in joining a group, and I'm sure others out there are too. Uh, Can you talk about how you got involved in them? And uh, I said, Mark, fuck off. Never contact me again. And I thought, you know, that's a little harsh. So I wrote him back. Now, uh, there's no one way to find a support group. I would say the first 
thing to ask yourself is what are the, what, what are the issue or issues, um, that I want to address and then go find it from there. Uh, if it's addiction related, I'm a big fan of the 12 step model, but uh, 12 step isn't for everybody. Um, if you are looking for support because a loved one is battling with something, uh, you know, maybe bipolar, uh, NAMI is a good place to go, uh, maybe find a support group meeting. That's NAMI.org. Uh, a great place, a one-stop, uh, kind of resource place is called HelpGuide.org. And I like how I made my P pop there. Help, HelpGuide.org. And um, they have a lot of links to to other things. And talk to your therapist. Talk to friends. Um, Google Google things. Go to Craigslist and find somebody with a sexy picture. Go out to dinner with them and then pick their brain. Uh, this is fi- this is uh, filled out by Casserole. Oh, and uh, she said, "Say it in a French accent." I don't know how you pronounce casserole in a French. Casserole, casserole. I know it's croissant. Car- There's probably a casserole. Car- I don't want to know how how ugly my face would be speaking French, and I am actually half French, half Irish, half French. She writes about her depression. My depression is my hiding place. Wow. That is so relatable for so many of us. Snapshot from her life. Spending another weekend alone in my seriously messy, unkempt apartment doing nothing but watching TV shows and YouTube. Anything to distract and numb myself. Surrounded by dirty plates, food containers, etc. And the thought of tidying up feels like a monumental effort. I just realized that all the disgusting mess around me is like a comforting blanket to keep me safe. Having a clean space will make me feel too exposed. Wow, that was deep. That was deep. It's crazy the way our brains work. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Dazed and Confused writes um, an awfulsome moment. When my mom first found out I was cutting, my parents took my phone and TV away. I like that you punish your kid for cutting. You're in pain. You need some pain. Apparently watching Netflix was the reason for my issues, question mark. And communicating with friends and watching YouTube on my phone, the only outlet I had, was also damaging me, apparently. I felt like I was being punished for being depressed. Yeah, that's exactly what uh, you were being punished for. They thought that me self-harming was in some way acting out, even though they only found out because my therapist made them, made me tell them. Uh, if it was for attention, wouldn't I have shown them? Obviously not. The first time I was hospitalized, I was having a full-on meltdown, and my dad only exacerbated the issue by telling me it was made up for attention. I was hitting myself and cussing and sobbing and telling my parents I wanted to kill myself. My dad said, if you wanted to kill yourself, you would have done it already. You wouldn't be telling us about it. He kept saying that to me to, quote, prove I just wanted attention. So, in order to prove him wrong... I got up to go get a knife from the kitchen, and he tackled me and held me down. My parents proceeded to admit me into the hospital. 
I wasn't going to actually do anything with that knife because I knew I wouldn't make it that far. I just wanted to have a moment where I could say, don't you believe me? Uh, Oh, you don't believe me? Fine, watch me. When we did my intake and I explained what happened, my dad summed up his words with, I said some things I shouldn't have. It was just so funny that after that huge ordeal, that was the sum of what happened in his mind. Yeah, you know, we spent a nice weekend together. Uh, she threatened suicide. I dared her. You know, father-daughter stuff. And, uh, you know, other than that, just the typical family game of uh, suicide chicken. You know, and the, and the fucked up thing is is your parents, though damaging, are probably not bad people. They're probably just afraid and emotionally ignorant. You know, for anybody who listens to this podcast and think that this is just all about shitting on people who hurt us, it's it's not. Well, yeah, maybe occasionally that does happen. My goal with this podcast is for us to give weight to what it is that we're feeling, not to punish other people, but so that we can Stop punishing ourselves by telling ourselves we're making too big of a deal of it. So we can process it. Not so we can go complain or, you know, whatever. I hope that makes sense. And if not, you guys know where to go fuck yourself. You've chosen a safe, a safe place by now. You've chosen, you have uh, built a go fuck yourself shelter in your backyard with cans of beans and corn and a big sign that says, don't forget to go fuck yourself. Uh, A guy who goes by the name of PM uh, wrote in and said, do you have any advice on how to be a good friend to somebody who is bipolar and delusional? How do I nudge him towards help? And what a great question. And uh, first of all, let me say, as I always say, I am not a mental health professional. But I have dealt with my own crazy and a lot of my friends. And when I say crazy, you know what I mean. I say that lovingly. Um, I wrote to him, compassion for your friend is great, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. If you find yourself becoming drained or resentful, that's a sign that you are ignoring your own needs. You can't save your friend. You can tell him how you feel, but you can't change him or make him get help if he doesn't want it. The exception being, if you think his life or someone else's life is in immediate danger, then you can call 911. Uh, I have had to cut contact with a friend who had similar issues uh, because she refused to get help and she needed to be medicated. She was delusional. She was paranoid. Her life was falling apart and uh, her life was chaos. I finally had to tell her I loved her, but it was too painful to be around her when she's sick. And I offered to find her help, uh, and she refused. And so, um, as I mentioned, I think at another point in the podcast, uh, NAMI.org might be a good place to learn some some tools to help uh, a friend without becoming codependent. And that's NAMI.org, NAMI.org. And I'm sure there are books, too, um, on the, the Internet, the series of tubes and wires that I'm speaking to you from. Matt writes about, um, 
what is this? Struggle in a sentence. Um, he writes, uh, driving on the freeway briefly entertained the idea of slamming into the divider while flooring the gas. It would be so easy. Then I remember that I would probably survive because nowadays cars are too safe. Shakes fist at sky. Damn you. Fuck red lights. Shares about her depression and anxiety. It's like sitting at a red light, thankful that you're not currently driving, but also thinking, is this light ever going to fucking turn green? (laughs) 1M shares an awful moment. My father, I found out via Google. (laughs) Via Google? (laughs) That's how the Italians pronounce it. Via Google? Uh, Was arrested a few years ago for impersonating a police officer, and then in caps, after I repeatedly warned him that he was going to be. I don't even want to know. Actually, I do want to know why he was impersonating a police officer. And is there any valid reason for impersonating a police officer? I I cannot think of a single one. Uh, Maybe you're in the Village People cover band, and even that, there's a tragedy. There's a tragedy in that. Jason... Uh, struggles with depression, ADD, anxiety, and an addiction to weed. Uh, he writes, I'm high almost 24-7, and it's been that way uh, for a year. I'm 29 years old and can hardly drive home from work without bawling my eyes out because of how depressed I've become. Pulling onto my uh eighth of a mile long asphalt drive, driving into my three-car garage and walking into my 6,000 square foot house doesn't make me feel any better. I consider blowing my brains out, hanging myself from one of the basement support beams, or crashing my vehicle into a cement bridge just to end it all. Uh, Jason, I am not a therapist. Uh, In fact, I forgot to do that disclaimer at the beginning of this show. Uh, I'm a jackass, but I have gone through addiction and using drugs and alcohol, not recreationally, but as a way to cope, using them emotionally. And it is the biggest roadblock. It was the biggest roadblock I had in getting better. And I have the feeling that is going to be the case with you. Is It's like you want to get out there and play baseball, but you're trying to do it from the dugout. Man, you got to get out of the dugout. And yeah, it's going to be an, involve being seen and maybe making mistakes or errors and feeling embarrassed or vulnerable, but you're going to see that it doesn't kill you. But trying to live your life in the dugout is going to fucking kill you. So to pound this terrible analogy a little further into the ground, come out onto the field and play a little ball with us. Oh, I hate myself so much right now. Marie, oh, this is so good, so succinct. Her depression, empty, hollow, the opposite of hopeful. And then uh, anxiety, lack of control. You you could be a, uh, if there was ever like a, um, you know, on, on what do they call it on a TV show? The slug line? Is that what they call it? No, what's the thing that they, uh, when they sum up what a show is in a line or two? 
You could do that for emotions. Oh my God, I want to go back and rewind and fucking erase that. Uh, this is a happy moment from the artist formerly known as the Montvale Coat Guy. I don't know who the Montvale Coat Guy is, but it's got to be from something funny. Um, and as I said, this is a, this is a happy moment. And he writes, uh, my 22-year-old son um, has PTSD, and he'd recently begun therapy again, and it seemed to be going well enough, so he asked me how I was so sure he was going to be okay. Without missing a beat, I replied, because I know you're bigger than the shit that goes on in your head. He was quiet for a bit after that, but I could tell my words hit home. Paul, I know you mentioned in a recent podcast that parents don't have to wait until their kids get a good grade or hit a home run, and I know that sometimes people need to know someone is grateful for them simply existing. That is, that is so awesome. That is so awesome. Me being mentioned in that, that's so awesome. The rest of it's okay, but just me being mentioned is so fantastic. It's, uh, I'm looking in the mirror and uh, parting, parting my hair with a 70s comb as I, <laughs> and I've got a silk shirt uh, unbuttoned down to my navel and a lot of gold chains. So many, yeah. yeah. Tons of gold chain. Texas spaghetti, I like to call it. Uh, no, but thank you for that. That What a beautiful moment. That concept had never even occurred to me until somebody shared with me in a support group, you know, you don't have to do anything to be lovable. You know, you you can just be lovable because you are you. And then they hit me. And they broke my nose and told me, don't ever be vulnerable again. It's a trap. And then they ran off. Uh, Kelly describes her anxiety. Anxiety is my older sister pointing out all my flaws and everything that can go wrong. Oh, that is so fucking good. Uh, about her celiac disease. It's a bully. It took away the best parts of my lunch and left me with the carrots. You guys, man. You just come up with the best shit. Um, snapshot from her life. After sleeping for five hours last night, I'm back in bed. I started out unmotivated and lethargic. Then I fell asleep for six hours. I woke up again just to lie in bed and stare at the wall. Oh my God, can I relate to that? There is a sick comfort in staring at something that is really bland. I always find myself drawn to staring at a wall when I'm depressed, staring at a wall or a light bulb. It is, it is like the, it's, it's kind of like depression's, uh, go-to blanket of comfort. It's so, it's so hard to explain if you've never experienced that, but it's, it's kind of like a state of nothingness. Um, it's like it's like the best oblivion somebody who is depressed can hope for that isn't dangerous or addictive. Uh, Dazed and confused shares about her anxiety. It's the constant knowledge that at any given moment something could happen to ruin your life. Uh, sex addiction, putting yourself in situations that you know you're going to end up having sex and still feel surprised and disgusted when it happens. 
about codependency. The only way to feel like you're succeeding is if the people you're codependent with wholeheartedly approve of what you're doing. About having borderline personality disorder, it's constantly questioning if what I'm feeling is normal or if I'm overreacting again. That has to be maddening and terrifying. I'm going to try that again, and but this time make more page rustling. Uh, snapshot from her life. Growing up, I knew I didn't just have depression because of my horrible mood swings that took control of my life, but when I tried to tell doctors about it, they summed up my problems as being hormonal and attention-seeking. They should have their license revoked. To tell any human being that they're doing something for attention when they're coming to you for mental help uh, is even if you believed they were doing it for attention, don't fucking say that on the off chance that they're not. Uh, continuing, no one in my life seems to agree on what I have. Some say bipolar, some say BPD, some say I'm just exaggerating. And with my non-existent sense of identity, I always looked to others for affirmation. When everyone gives me different opinions on who I am, it just makes me more confused about what the hell is wrong with me. I don't understand why the smallest inconvenience makes me lose control of my mind, and I wish that I could make someone understand the chaos in my mind. I wish someone believed that I'm really hurting. I'm not just making it up. Well, I know this will sound cheesy, but we believe that you're not making it up, and we believe that you are hurting, and we see your pain, and everything that you're feeling is fucking valid, and it must be overwhelming and terrifying, and you are not alone, and just keep looking for help, because eventually you will, you will find it, and, um, and I'm sorry that you're, you're having to to go through this, um, but just keep at it. Just keep at it. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Kaylin, and she is uh, in her twenties. Identifies as bisexual. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Um, Yes, and I never reported it. Um, one time, uh, she was a child, and her memories are vague. Um, the descriptions are, are, are kind of graphic, and so I'm um, uh, just kind of generalizing them. Uh, and then when she was a little older, maybe nine, she was uh, abused by a friend of hers, a female friend of hers. Uh, and she writes, with both abuses, I feel shame, guilt, I blame myself, um, especially for what happened between my friend and I. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, because we were both friends. She was one of my best friends as a child, and we had fun all the time. And then this happened. Darkest thoughts. That I still get aroused when I think back on or have to talk about my abuse. Reminds me of when the abuse happened and I couldn't control my body, how it felt. And that as a result of my abuse, I am super hypersexual. And I hope you know that all of those things you just described are really common for somebody who has experienced uh, unwanted uh, sexual uh, contact, violation, whatever whatever you want to uh, 
call it. And I would, I would include myself uh, as somebody who has experienced that. Uh, Darkest Secrets. When I was a kid, maybe six, I would do things to a male friend of mine, also the same age. I would explore his genitalia. I remember masturbating as early as four or five years old, really young. As an adult, I've sent nudes to people I don't know. I fucked a random stranger in the back of his car. Uh, Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. My deepest sexual fantasies make me feel like a freak. Sometimes I think about being in a threesome. Sometimes I get off, dot, 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 I get off hearing people poop. Yeah, I know. It's weird. I know. It makes me feel like a perv. I need rough sex. I feel like I can't orgasm unless someone is going at me. Um, And you are not a perv. You are not a perv. We have no control over what it is. It turns us on. It's just like a freckle, you know? Um, what, if anything, would you say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to say I was sexually abused and that, as a result, I struggle a lot with hypersexuality and trying to find love in all the wrong places. I want to say I see myself as a victim and not fully a survivor. Not sure I want to say it. Uh, maybe because I want someone to hear me and fix me or at least make me somehow feel a bit better. What, if anything, do you wish for to be loved? Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I'm in therapy. A few friends know. A lot of people don't get it. They don't understand, which makes me feel like I'm too much. How do you feel after writing these things down? Exposed, nervous, scared. Um, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are not the only one who has been abused. You are not the only one struggling in the aftermath. You aren't a freak for whatever your similar thoughts may be. You did nothing wrong. Apply that to yourself. Apply that to yourself. It's great that you're in therapy. And uh, a lot of people won't get it. Um, You know, you're right. It makes me feel like I'm too much. You are not too much. What happened to you was too much. And that's how our brains react when too much happens. And um, I think a support group would be a great place for you to find healing because you would find some kindred spirits and you would realize that you are one of many and um, that there are people who will see you and hear you and support you. Um... This is filled out by Ms. Newly Woke, and she identifies as straight, uh, but also attracted to females in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, um, <clears throat> was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it, uh, and some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, I've just recently realized there were a few instances in my childhood where I engaged in a sexual encounter that wasn't wanted, but just felt like something I was supposed to do, like that's how sex was supposed to go. Once when I was 12, my friend's 19-year-old cousin dared me and consequently forced me to put his penis in my mouth, and then a similar experience happened a few years later at age 14 again with an older boy, and it wasn't until recently when I really thought on this as a violation of consent, but I am curious 
if it is what sparked my huge promiscuity phase in my early 20s and why I was always looking for validation in my body and sex. I also had an eating disorder and was curious if this could be a factor. This is a new discovery for me and I'm trying to unpack what it all means going forward. Am I actually a sexual abuse survivor or am I just blowing childhood experiences out of proportion? The first thing I would like to say is the labels are much less important than giving weight to the feelings. And the things that happened uh, to you um, are violations. And the uh, behavior that you showed in the the aftermath um, are extremely common for people who have experienced a sexual violation. So... um, Healing, to me, is the primary goal. And then finding out what the cause of that thing was is just kind of a nice um, bonus along the way. Getting Getting to make sense of it is great. But intellectually understanding what causes what, for me was not healing. It was encouraging, but healing had to take place through intimacy, vulnerability, and letting people get to know me, um, learning to trust, learning boundaries, um, and making a lot of mistakes along the way and not beating myself up or self-obsessing, which is no easy feat. I, I learned... Shockingly, there's a difference between self-reflection and self-obsession. Who knew? Uh, Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I think about what would happen if I disappeared or drove into a wall, how my husband would react, and if he and my family would even actually care. I have the feeling they would. Uh, Darkest secrets. When I was 20-ish, I got drunk with a male friend and we ended up hooking up. Looking back on it now, I remember being somewhat pressuring to him and wonder if I violated his consent and or raped him. We are both married now, and any time I have seen him since then, we just pretend everything is fine, but it continues to eat away at me, especially after my recent awareness to my own past. Um, Fantasy is most powerful to you, my husband watching me fuck another man. How does sharing that make you feel? Empowered. Awesome. Um... Have you shared these things with others? I've told my husband about my sexual fantasy, and he actually, he actually shares the same idea with me. We have also discussed my possible abuse, and he just seems compassionate, maybe a little confused on how he can be there for me. I have not shared with him the situation of me being the possible abuser, and I am terrified of doing that. Um, you know, what is so much more important to me than did we make a mistake is how we deal with a mistake. That to me is, um, the, that's where ethics and morality really show themselves because a lot of times mistakes are made because we are not awake. We, we're not conscious or as conscious as we should be about emotions and actions and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, How do you feel after writing these things down? Slightly better. 
Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I want to talk to my possible victim and reassure him I did not mean any harm and apologize for any trauma I caused. You sound like a really sweet person, and I think that would be a great idea, you know, to broach that subject. And uh, it could be healing for both of you, you know. And who knows, maybe it's, it wasn't even an issue for him, but... Um, I don't see how it could how it could hurt. Um, thank you for that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, E.N. And he writes, My parents only know how to express love by giving gifts. While they don't expect gifts back, they do expect you to love and appreciate them and their gifts no matter what they are. Neither one asks what I want, so they always get me something I don't want or need. Due to years of emotional abuse, I became estranged from my mom a couple of years ago, and only recently I tried, quote, going back to the well, as you put it, knowing I'll regret it. I've decided to invite, I decided to invite her to my apartment for the first time ever and have our first meeting in two years. She arrived with four massive bags of gifts, food she cooked, a raw chicken, a bunch of ground turkey, random canned food, some t-shirts that were ugly, a sweater I'd never wear. Shoes that were neither my style or my size. A two-foot ceramic dog statue to, quote, remind me of ours, who passed away years ago. The dog was not the same breed, too large to put anywhere in my apartment, and I didn't want it. She gave me a gold necklace with some saint pendants and Jesus shit. She knows I'm an atheist, and to top it all off, a large towel. It looked extremely nice, and I commented that it was the one thing I wanted out of everything. She said she got it just for me. The meeting went, as you'd expect, a disaster. After she leaves, refusing to take anything with her, I think to myself, well, at least I got a nice towel now. That's actually something I needed since my old ones are getting ragged. Two weeks go by of using the towel to shower, and damn, it's pretty great. And then I noticed the logo, Bellagio, Las Vegas. And then this is uh, an awfulsome moment from a woman who calls herself aching to feel at peace. And she writes, uh, it's not so much an awfulsome moment, but kind of a, a recurring thing that I think we can all relate to, those of us that are animal lovers. When you're driving your car on the interstate and you just want to suddenly turn the wheel sharply so your car flips and rolls you to your death, but then think, who's going to take care of my dog? He has GI problems. He's a handful. You then sigh and realize this is not a good choice for your dog's sake. And then finally, this is a uh, awfulsome moment filled out by a trans man who calls himself sitting in a tree, P-I-S-S-I-N-G. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Um, he had been dating uh, a guy and they'd been getting to know each other. And uh, so when we met this time, I wasn't expecting much besides that we would have a nice day as friends. We went to a botanical garden, drank tea, uh, played guitar together. Then I noticed he was coming closer. We touched for the first time, started kissing, and ended up with our shirts off. He was the first person to touch me after I had top surgery. The moment my bare chest touched his and he let out an audible gasp, was honestly the best moment I had in a really long time. Like he had been longing for that for years. At least I felt that way. I told him 
that I was really smelly, and he proposed that we take a shower together. Then I had to utter words I really wish I didn't have to. So um, I have a problem. I hadn't been able to pee all day, a problem I had dealt with before. Most often, in the end, I did end up peeing. However, right now, it was starting to hurt. I told him about the problem and said I had to go to the toilet. I sent him texts from the bathroom that this was the most horrible way to ruin the moment, but he was chill about it. I sat there for 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and realized that this wasn't one of those times that it was going to work out on itself, and I had a serious problem. I gathered up the courage to get out and tell him I had to go see a doctor. I called the evening doctor's office and explained that I had had this problem before and had to be catheterized previously and was certain it had to happen this time too. We drove to the hospital where he dropped me off with the car and said he would go home to get his bike because he couldn't park his car anywhere. I stood there in the waiting room, hunched over, but not being able to sit, thinking that this moment would have been good for a movie, but sucked in reality. When finally a doctor showed up, I was in a lot of pain. She told me to sit down, I couldn't, and asked me to explain the problem I was having. Looking slightly confused, she said, so you need a catheter for a male or a female? To which I replied, I'm a trans man. I identify as male, but you need to use the catheter for a short urethra. So, she said, you don't have a penis anymore? To which I responded, I never had a penis. She then proceeded to slowly type some more information into her computer and looked around the place for a catheter. Sorry, I'm new here. I can't find a catheter. I will call the urologist. My bladder was so big at this point, it honestly looked like I was four months pregnant. The urologist told her to look again, and asking, after asking a colleague, she managed to find it. At this time, I had started dissociating to not be aware of the people touching my vagina, and as she finally started applying the, the tube I had in my hands in my hair, applying the tube I had in my hands in my hair? I think maybe she, did she mean lube? Um, uh, with my eyes pressed together, oh, I guess the tube, the catheterization tube. Um, oh, I see. And as she finally started applying the tube, should have been a comma there. I had my hands in my hair with my eyes pressed shut. I thought it would soon be over. It wasn't. For some reason, when she applied the tube, it didn't start running. Huh, strange. Are you sure you didn't have any surgical procedures? Yes, I said. Perhaps you're in the wrong hole. She laughed and said she would look for a bigger tube. Same thing, same problem. Nothing happened and I was still in pain. She started putting pressure on my bladder as if there wasn't enough pressure on it to begin with and a little bit of fluid entered the tube. Strange, thick urine. I'm going to send you to the urologist. I had to get redressed and got sent to the emergency room. In the meantime, I was texting my crush and at this moment I told him I could really use you here. It was silent for a bit, then he texted... I have hospital anxiety. I texted him back not to worry about it because as I had gotten used to living with OCD, which caused my peeing problems in the first place, I knew what anxiety was and felt quite relieved that he felt comfortable sharing that with me. In the ER, things finally went well. 
The nurses helping me didn't ask any inappropriate questions, and when I told them to use the right catheter because I didn't have a penis, they were like, what? Who told you that there's a difference? A primary physician? Ugh, they don't know shit. I spread my legs for yet another two strangers, and at this point, just started making loud noises to distract myself from the pain. I heard them comment on my junk. Huh? Where is it? And as they finally got it in, and the pressure went off, I felt a major relief. Then I realized that the, quote, thick urine that had been in the catheter tube at the, at the doctor was my pre-cum from the passionate kissing an hour before. The doctor had indeed entered the wrong hole. And that's the end of our show. I wanted to end on another feel-good catheter story. Uh, if people ask, what is the mental illness happy hour about? You could say they take a really thorough examination of the pluses and minuses of pre-cum. It's a general look into incompetent parenting, holes, and uh, a lot of self-flagellating by a guy that almost registers to some people as a somewhat familiar face. Thank you for that, by the way. Um, Wow, what a fucking story. That made me want to pee just reading that. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And um, there weren't a lot of um, awfulsome moments or happy moments to choose from. Um, I really look for for those sometimes for the laughter or lightness, uh, the kind of the contrast in the podcast. So if you've yet to fill those out, please go go fill them out. Maybe we'll read yours on the air. But regardless, it I going back to our original topic. I'm in acceptance. I'm in acceptance. It was how it was, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you didn't. Uh, I'll be okay. (laughs) Just remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.